0: What's up, friends? Welcome back to another episode of the New Evangelicals Podcast. So good to be with you. On this episode, I have Caitlin Beatty, who wrote the book Celebrities for Jesus How Personas, Platforms, and Prophets Are Hurting the Church. I promise you, unlike a different scenario, which I will not name, this was not intentionally timed to have her on the podcast right after we covered the Matt Chandler news of him being restored to ministry. But I do think this is a very, um, you know, key conversation to have at this time. So buckle up. Uh, It was a really great conversation. Her book is great. You can get it now on all platforms, Amazon, audiobook, the whole nine. It's well worth the read. As always, friends, a sincere thank you from me for being part of this community and listening to the show. It means the world. If you can give us a rating and a review on iTunes, that'd be so helpful. And also, we are doing our live podcast event this week, this Friday at eight o'clock in Chattanooga, Tennessee, with April Joy, Mike from Mad Priest Coffee. It's going to be great. We're doing um, a full video production. We have a bunch of tickets sold. I would love to meet you. If you're in the general area, I would love to have you come out. You can get tickets at the link in our show notes. It would be so cool to meet people who listen to the podcast, and you can be part of not one but two live recordings, hang out with me, hang out with April, meet some new friends, so I really recommend it. Hey, listen, if you can't make the event, maybe you're not in the surrounding area, We have live streaming options available. Again, check out the link in our show notes. I love to see you on the live stream. It's gonna be a great time. And lastly, friends, one thing I do wanna mention, we are a registered nonprofit organization and it is the end of the year. So I would just strongly encourage you, if you have found our work helpful and if you wanna help other people know that if they're rethinking their faith, they're not alone, would you consider donating to our organization? This is a big time of year for us. We're trying to raise the money we need for a successful 2023. If you know know anything about us, you know that we don't charge for anything. We don't do anything behind paywalls. There's no Patreon account. We rely on the generosity of our community to chip in to make all this work possible. And if you were ever interested in donating, now is the time. Um, It would just mean the world to so many people. I can't tell you how many messages we get Almost daily now of people thanking us for the for the work that we're doing and that's made possible by your donations You can click on the link in our show notes All donations in the u.s. are tax deductible, which is good for you And also helps people know that they're not alone in their deconstructing journey All right friends without further ado here is my episode with caitlin. I hope you enjoy it talk to you all next week Let me ask you a question Do you have a hard time picking up and reading a bible because your faith tradition ruined it for you? But you want to approach the bible in a fresh way? Bibliotheca is a Bible that invites you to engage with the text in a totally different way, the way its ancient readers would have experienced it. Unlike a typical reference Bible that looks and feels like a dictionary, these books look and feel like inviting literature. You get five cloth bound volumes, no chapters or verse numbers, no cross references, no notes. Bibliotheca is currently taking pre orders for another print run, and if you order now, you'll get special early bird pricing, and guess what? Big news. Your purchase will support TNE, that's us, as well. Use the code TNE22 when you check out, and $20 of every pre-ordered set will go toward the work that we do here at TNE. That is a win-win. Again, visit bibliotheca.co or check the link in our show notes, and be sure to use the code TNE22 when you check out. Thanks. Caitlin Beatty, it is so good to have you on the podcast. I appreciate you making time. Thanks for being here.
1: Thanks so much for having me. Excited to dive in.
0: Yes, likewise. So you wrote a book, Celebrities for Jesus, How Personas, Platforms, and Prophets Are Hurting the Church. This is right up the New Evangelicals alley for sure. And we're going to dig into this. But before we do that, I must ask... Why did you decide to write this book, and and did you grow up like, in evangelical spaces? If I was a guessing man, mm. based on this book, I would have to say yes, but I could be wrong. <laughs> so I would love to hear some of your backstory.
1: Yeah, you're guessing correctly. I grew up as uh, a 90s evangelical child, came to Christ at a youth rally in 1998 after a concert from Jeff Moore in the distance. G e G e o f f. very important. Um, And was thrust into purity culture. I went to a big youth conference called Acquire the Fire twice. Um, And so, yeah, very much steeped in American evangelical culture. And then that continued on into my career. I worked at Christianity Today magazine for about a decade. And that's really where I started to see some of the underbelly of the cultural trappings of American evangelicalism. Well, obviously, you know, as a journalistic publication, our staff would get tips quite a bit about household names in the evangelical world, people whose books were in our family library growing up, like, you know, pastors, evangelists, bestselling authors, and the allegations that we were receiving and then having to look into were really alarming and jarring, just people who I had perceived to be who they presented themselves to be as like faithful Christian leaders were in fact doing things behind closed doors that were either duplicitous or illegal or abusive. And so that's what really started me wanting to dig into this phenomenon. I mean, we, we've all seen the headlines in recent years. And I basically wanted to write a book that asks like, what is going on? What is in the water that is contributing to this?
0: Okay, so at this point, would you still say that, that, that you're somewhere in the Christian tradition, or or have you kind of walked away from it based on just all of the hypocrisy and stuff that, that you've seen in the church?
1: I'm still a Christian. I don't know if I'm still an evangelical. I mean, yeah. I certainly—the um, word carries a lot of baggage, And depending on who I'm talking to, it often creates more barriers than entryways into conversation. So I go to a church and, you know, I'm, I still very much am drawn to the person of Christ, but, you know, for a lot of people, and I include myself in this many Mm -hmm. days, the, the cultural, political, racial, racialized baggage of evangelicalism is not baggage that I want to carry Because I happen to grow up in this movement. And I think that there are are plenty of expressions of earnest Christian faith outside white evangelical subculture. And that's what I'm interested in investing in these days.
0: I mean, you're really speaking the language of a lot of people, as you well know, because you wrote a book on this, but you're absolutely right. I mean, I talk to people all the time, and I'm, I'm also one of those people who was firmly seated in evangelical spaces, all in, committed, and between the 2016 election, uh, the subsequent, um, I would call it, uh, um, idolization of Donald Trump, and then, of course, the response mm-hmm. to Black Lives Matter, and then, of course, the COVID response. I mean, that's like the holy trinity of a deconstructing Christian in my or evangelical, <laughs> in my view, because it was one thing after another where i said okay i thought that because we had the same beliefs we shared the same values clearly Mm -hmm. we don't though and that was like a big watershed moment for me as well like i'm drawn to jesus i think i'm trying to be as faithful as possible still to jesus and because of that i don't know if i can still sit here anymore so i I understand you know that that tension for sure Mm mm-hmm Yeah. Yeah,
1: And I think that connects to the celebrity leader dynamic, because these are people that we, we meaning book publishers, churches, denominations, conference circuits have put on platforms because we're saying, if these people live lives of integrity, they're people you should follow. But when you realize there's such a moral disconnect between you know, the values that somebody articulates and then how they conduct themselves behind closed doors, like the, the lack of moral integrity, I think, was a big issue for a lot of Christians with the 2016 election. How can you tell me that what it means to be a faithful Christian is to support this person of all people? But right. also, where is the moral integrity when the people were giving platforms to and like very generous book publishing contracts to our kind of jerks at the very least behind closed doors. Like where is the moral integrity there?
0: Yeah. So we're going to get into a lot of that, especially at some of the more modern uh, characters that we've seen covered, you know, but my first question kind of, and I I've read a lot of the book. It's really great. It's a really easy, but really helpful and uh knowledgeable read. It taught me a lot of things. And one of my first questions is where do we, where do we start with seeing kind of this rise in history of like this mega church celebrity pastor idea? You, mm-hmm. you tie it back partly to Billy Graham. Was he kind of the first one or were there people before him as well to kind of capitalize on this celebrity culture?
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean, there were other evangelists who Billy Graham kind of wanted to be like mm. that really used the tools of mass media, newspapers, radio, like televised crusades to reach as many people with the gospel. I think Billy Graham was probably in some ways like the most successful evangelical celebrity um, just in terms of his stature. Apparently he was considered very attractive. I didn't realize that until doing some research. I I wouldn't have thought of him as like a hot pastor, but maybe he was like 50 years ago. I'm gonna um,
0: name the podcast this. You know, Billy Graham, the Babe, with
1: <laughs> the <laughs> original Babe, the original Christian yeah, Babe. Perfect. <laughs> but certainly, like the just the very pragmatic and even progressive use of of mass media, like to project an image that drew crowds. You know, that's kind of a very basic element of what it means to be a celebrity. He, he was very likable. He befriended actual celebrities like you know Hollywood actresses and politicians like he wanted to be in realms of cultural power I think we see that now with some of the like cool hot pastors who want to uh, draw Justin Bieber to their churches right um yeah I, I I do think that Billy Graham Um, kind of set the stage in some ways for what we would see moving into the 80s and 90s where you had baby boomer pastors who were like, you know, church is considered boring and stuffy. And we want to draw people using really good marketing tools. We want to cater to people's felt needs. That approach to church worked. It still works. Like the vast majority of people who attend church today on a regular basis are in like, the largest churches, you know. Um, yeah. So it worked in terms of drawing people to the church, you know, that kind of felt needs. Let's create a space that feels like a mall and a community center and a Starbucks and a daycare, like all in one. Right. That definitely worked. But, you know, central to the mega church model is a. A focus on the lead pastor as the celebrity of the church, like just in terms of how much, um, how much his own image and persona and charisma are seen as central to the church's growth, and that's why you know that was a big component in the story of Mars Hill. I'm sure you're listening to, uh, maybe heard about this story. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, Mars Hill, Mark Driscoll, like. Mark Driscoll, you know, said infamously in one meeting, I am the brand. Right. And even though other mega church pastors probably are not as bold as to say it explicitly, they believe it and they are treated like the brand.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, also, Mark was kind of right. I mean, right? I mean, everything Mm -hmm. did center around Mark. And that is kind of one of the problems is is that the brand – like if Stephen Furtick left Elevation, I'm not sure – if elevation would continue on the same path at the same pace that it's going, if if, if suddenly the face is, is someone else, right? I mean, it, it, you could toss it up to maybe the worship mm-hmm. team, but but Stephen to me is elevation. Like, they're kind of one and the same. And so I understand what you're saying there completely. One question I wanted to ask you, and this is maybe kind of a side note, but I think it's important. Um you know, you mentioned like that—that that this mega church thing worked, and I think on one level, as far as attracting a lot of people to a big event and getting a lot of money, it worked. But I think theologically, it, it kind of created, um, um, you know, a very um, sugar rush based uh, congregation, mm-hmm. right? That was just focused on mm-hmm. attending these mass events to, to get this sugar rush and then go home. Which I think we, we we would probably both say now, as we explore outside the evangelical tradition in America, like maybe that's like the best version of Christian. Theology or thinking. What are your thoughts on that? I, I have to ask.
1: <laughs> yeah, I should say just because something works doesn't mean it's right. <laughs> <laughs> Fair you enough.
0: Right. Okay. <laughs> like click
1: clickbait articles work doesn't mean I should True. click on them. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. No, I I mean I grew up in a church that w- I would say was a mega church hopeful. I don't think we yeah. ever cracked the like yeah. two thousand member mark, but there was a church down the street that had, and we wanted to be like them. But yeah, I I certainly like think back to sermons that I heard, or kind of the understanding of discipleship, and it was flimsy. It was flat. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why I'm not drawn to that kind of church experience anymore. Is because um, you know something can be big, but also shallow. Like something can grow horizontally, but the depth is not there. And at some point, I think if you are a Christian, you want something more, you know, I think the mega church kind of tells you that you come for an hour on Sunday to get your individual felt needs for inspiration met. You get that through great uplifting worship music and, you know, an inspirational message from the pastor, and then you go home. And what is so lacking is an understanding of, you know, being committed to a community community. Um, you know, a a Christianity that might require sacrifice or discomfort.
0: (laughs) Yeah, right, right.
1: (laughs) Or like doing the hard thing instead of the easy thing. Um, you know, Jesus's words are not a sugar rush. Like, like they're really, really, really hard. You know, Mm. there are hard sayings in Scripture, and so I, I don't have a problem with the idea that. You know, there are ways to draw people in, but then if you're drawing them into something shallow, it's no wonder that people are going to leave as quickly as they came in, because in fact, we all want something more durable and community oriented than what we've been given in so many other sectors of life.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think about uh, the recent um, State of Theology research that came out uh, from, is it Ligonier? It's R.C. Sproul's organization and life Research. Yeah, Ligonier. And they found that 43% of evangelicals, get ready for this, do not believe that Jesus is God. I mean— i'm not kidding when i tell you that i mean that that's their data and they also found that it's something like like 98 of evangelicals believe that sex outside of marriage is sinful so or or that that being queer is definitely not reconcilable with being a christian like the overall majority and i think that's kind of an interesting snapshot of like of the Mm -hmm. product and like in the fruit of this mega church and like evangelical culture of people don't uh, don't believe what I would argue are the, the, maybe one of the most widespread universal truths about being a Christian. In almost every case, that Jesus <laughs> was God. Almost half don't believe that. But if you're gay, you're definitely in sin. Like we we're mm-hmm. we're, we're we're you know we're definitely firm on that. And I think that's I think that's kind of to your point of like this sugar has nothing behind it besides like whatever that that rhetoric or dogma is going to be. But it's not really steeped in. I, I, I don't use this term often, but I would argue faithful Christian orthodoxy, you know, that mm-hmm. that, that, that Jesus is God. So I had to bring that up as you were talking because I'm like, yeah, we're seeing that fruit now. And even back mm-hmm. in the day, back in the day, term used loosely, I went through the book by the Barnard Group, UnChristian, which is all of their data on like the state of evangelicalism in America. And they found very similar findings, you know, that that mm-hmm. that, that the overwhelming amount of people in America say that at one time they, they've walked down an aisle and prayed a prayer and became a Christian, but very few had even like the basics of christian belief you know um espoused on, on the survey so it is interesting to see kind of that dichotomy right of oh i identify mm. as this but i don't really hold to many of like the most consistent beliefs in that tradition
1: mhm yeah and that's where you see if if evangelical is such a flimsy term in terms of theological formation and orientation that it can be so easily co-opted for other purposes, right? Right. Like, if it doesn't have, like, a, a historical grounding, a grounding in creeds or in what the church has taught, you know, I would say the church has taught for 2,000 years, more or less, that Jesus is God.
0: <laughs> that right. Seems, that
1: seems like a, a very basic one. Um, right. Right. If we don't have even that kind of grounding or depth of formation, it's no wonder that evangelical kind of just means whatever people in power want it to mean to get people on their side, right? Like, yeah. it, it can be easily co-opted. So that's why someone like Donald Trump can say evangelicals have never had – like, Christians have never had a bigger win or a bigger, bigger champion <laughs> than me. Right. <laughs> which is an insane thing to, for me to now remember and say out loud. Right. Um but yeah, if this term like has such little rootedness, it can just be, you know, used and co-opted for bad actors who are looking for power essentially.
0: No, 100%. And that's why I had to bring up that that particular stat because like you said, if there's one thing that most, like 99.9% of Christians agree on, it's that Jesus is God. And to know that that close to half of evangelicals or self-identified evangelicals would say, meh, maybe not, <laughs> it is pretty shocking. So I do want to kind of move to maybe more of like our, our current day. Uh, let me ask you this question regarding like how what, what you've seen in your research. I understand that that there is a celebrity megachurch problem, but I think that like that, that, power trip happens in smaller churches as well just, it's just not as it's not as talked about because it's not as prolific did you mm. find that in your research or have you found that really the mega church industry has a more unique problem with pastors mm. on power trips and, and you know full of ego
1: yeah well i think the mega church model maybe exacerbates pre-existing mm. tendencies to narcissism and to ego Because of the structure of the service, because the pastor and the pastor's oratory skills are seen as kind of the main event, because of the use of technology to project a very attractive image of the pastor from the stage. So the distance that the model, the megachurch model kind of assumes, I think, creates lack of accountability for pastors who are coming in who want to kind of do whatever they want and use this stage for their own power and glory, Having said that, it would be very naive to think that pastors of small churches don't also struggle with ego and the need for power and control, Mm. right? Or wanting to be treated like a celebrity. Like, maybe they're not getting the big book deals. Maybe they're not speaking at all the big Christian conferences. But in terms of how they see themselves and how they want other people to relate to them, yeah. Absolutely. Like, that is one of the most common responses I've gotten to this book is this happens in small churches as well. So I think we would be naive not to think that, you know, in some in some ways, this is the very old human propensity to grasp for power and self glory. And it's just give it's working itself out in different permutations in the weird American evangelical church, but it's a very old problem.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really a fair point, right? I mean, humans do bad things in any any structure or any system. We've seen that in the deconstruction space. We've seen some people do some really harmful things. So it's not like this is, mm. you know, um, this is just uh, – it's not that we're saying that that people want power only in, in white evangelical megachurch spaces, but what we are – what I am saying is that it seems like for what they claim to be and what they actually – Live out seems to be two different things very often, right? Like, like I, I have examples in my head of people in the space that I exist in who did harm and they repented and they changed and they're no, they're either no longer in that in that space anymore and in, in, in that leadership position or they repented and and they they moved on and we all moved on with them, right? But it seems like in the culture that you and I have both swam in, there seems to be this like defense mechanism that is triggered of well, I, no one's perfect, you know. I mean, and and, and I think right one example of this. Mm-hmm. I think about is John MacArthur. You know, John MacArthur had three different stories come out about him, uh, about him and his church hiring three different pedophiles, two of which molested their own children, one of which is in prison. John MacArthur has defended that. Uh, we have handwriting of him defending it, and he's never responded to those allegations. And his his audience still celebrates him as a godly gospel preaching man. And that's mm-hmm. and we're not even touching what he said about slavery, which we've also documented. So why do you think like that is where it's like I I don't get it. You talk about family values and sexual purity. Here's a, a mm. great example of a powerful leader dropping the ball, not even acknowledging the harm done, but instead defending it and his audience goes, "Yes, John, you're preaching the gospel." Mm-hmm. Give me your insight to this. Like what is mm-hmm. what is causing this? To me, <laughs> it just blows my mind.
1: Well, as you recount the recent <laughs> scandal surrounding John MacArthur. I'm trying to keep my eyeballs from falling out of my head. (laughs) I forgot about those details, but it is like, I am just as in some ways I am just as kind of flummoxed Mm -hmm. as you are by the fact that this person, this leader can face this many horrible allegations. I mean, you would think covering for a person who is a child sex abuser who is now in jail would be like, kind of basic, like, what more do you have to do, you know? Right. I think so much of this is, in the case of John MacArthur, is someone who has built his persona around being anti-woke and resisting kind of a mob mentality. I'm going to rise above that. The mob is coming after me, so I'm the victim. But I think that kind of I'm going to stand up for the truth, I'm going to stand up for myself, despite what the mob say about me, is just part of his branding. Yeah. And people who still celebrate him are looking for that as well. Like, they're looking for some kind of almost hyper-masculine macho. I mean, I don't look at John MacArthur and <laughs> think, like, wow, macho man.
0: Rambo. But- <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> no offense, John. Um, but yeah, somebody whose persona is kind of oriented around um, standing up against, you know, some kind of perceived liberal public consensus or mob. I yeah. Now, I don't know how it is the case that speaking out against sex abuse is seen as a liberal issue. Like, right. Like, what are we talking about?
0: <laughs> right, right. How,
1: how could this be? Um, I would think it would be kind of a universal, moral Christian concern across the board, regardless of who's your favorite theologian. But right. But the way that, I think these leaders have politicized these situations and these allegations as they work in a conservative liberal false dichotomy and paint people who are speaking up against them as being liberal, as being evil, as trying to take down a good and godly man, as trying to sow division within the church, as trying to spread gossip and slander. I mean, the list goes on. The defenses are so replete and (laughs) and people buy into them you know I wonder if some of what's going on with John MacArthur is that people just feel this weird loyalty to him because they like his bible study and they feel like now he's our guy and there's nothing that he can do that would make me question my loyalty which I think is a very dangerous place for any of us to be in but I think it works
0: well and one of the reasons why I brought up John in particular is because he lives in the world of uh the bible purist right people who would say just preach the gospel they would call stephen furtick a heretic they would call the prosperity gospel a false gospel yet john MacArthur is quite wealthy off of his brand um and then does things that are blatantly un. i mean if we're going to take the fundamentalist approach and read everything literally and we're going to look at the qualifications for pastor one of them is being above reproach and for john Mm -hmm. not even to acknowledge uh, the allegations that, by the way, Julie Royce did a great job with receipts. You know, demonstrating how mm-hmm. how this, she's not making this up. I. It, it's amazing for me to maybe amazing isn't the right word, I'm flummoxed like you, right? Just to watch this happen. And I think that's one of the reasons, I think that this mentality is one of the reasons why we're seeing a lot of people leave these spaces because we're we're watching what someone like John MacArthur will say from the pulpit about repentance and purity and living godly lives. But then once... It happens to John. And by the way, like you said, we're not talking about John was kind of mean to someone one time. We're not talking about, you know, uh, we're not even saying John cheated on his wife, which would also be terrible. We're talking about the molestation of children. I mean, this is serious stuff. And to Mm -hmm. have people. Um, you know, um, defend him it is really surprising to me. And it's something, like you said, I'm still trying to wrap my head around, but I think it plays into this celebrity idea. Even though that crowd would never say he's a celebrity, they absolutely right. view him as a celebrity, someone who has mm-hmm. done so much good that, well, you know, no one's perfect, then becomes the next play. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I think so much... Of the celebrity dynamic in the church has to do with seeing leaders as spiritually superior or like closer to God than the rest of us. It's like we're looking, we are looking for touch points to the sacred and the divine in our midst. Yeah and so we latch on to specific people whose work has you know impressed us or made a positive impact in our lives or whatever and instead of just stopping there and being appreciative we owe a kind of we attach and provide a kind of allegiance to that figure as being somehow closer to god than the rest of us and i think you know the the basic biblical description of that is idolatry, (laughs) like, like giving an ultimate kind of loyalty to a person, a community, an institution over God, like over, like, like confusing our allegiances so that someone like John MacArthur can be seen as God-like. I mean, that's, that is the basic definition of idolatry.
0: Yeah. So let me ask you this. I've noticed um, – I, I, I'm old enough to remember, which is you know something I thought I'd never say, but I remember when Rob Bell wrote Love Wins, okay? And I remember John Piper tweeting farewell, Rob Bell, and like a light switch, Rob Bell was quickly and swiftly pushed out of evangelical everything. I mean he was just considered an outcast. It was goodbye. And I've noticed that in my circles, whenever I bring up like Mark Driscoll, right, and I, 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 I will say, "Hey, Mark Driscoll has had a book written about him. He had an entire podcast series that has has demonstrated how abusive he was. He's mm-hmm. still unrepentant. Yet he's talking at Gateway Church. He's still leading. Why don't they get him out?" And I, and I hear, "Well, you know, it's not my church, etc." But I know how evangelical culture works. When I mean, they want someone gone, they will get someone gone. Why don't you think mm. that 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 evangelicals will? not rob bell someone like mark driscoll but instead they'll deflect <laughs> and say oh well you know we have no jurisdiction here but we all know that's a bunch of nonsense because he speaks at their events he's in their circles etc mm-hmm. what are your thoughts on mm-hmm. that
1: mm-hmm. yeah i think a lot of evangelicals would say and i i don't i think that this approach is naive but i think it it's the operating system for a lot of people rob bell is out because he didn't have right theology mark driscoll is in because at least he preached the gospel which right i would say well yeah but everything about mark driscoll's leadership and persona and how he treated people was anti-gospel and we we need to look at behavior and actions and were you know words not backed up by actions are empty but I think it, it does come down to this perception of theological orthodoxy and the boundaries of orthodoxy. Yeah. And in the case of Rob Bell, John Piper has built his own personality, persona and brand over the years as being a gatekeeper of orthodoxy. Like totally. John Piper is one of the elder statement, elder statesman's of, uh, of evangelical orthodoxy so if he says this person is out it has more weight yeah. than somebody else so i think yeah, yeah I, I think it's like a, a theological purity
0: hmm. and mark yeah
1: mark driscoll yeah. got away with so much for so long because oh at least he preached correct reform doctrine
0: Right, which he then later repudiated, but that's a whole different story for a different time. But yeah, okay, that, that that is really helpful to to understand. So okay, so you have this book, Celebrities for Jesus, and it details so much of this and other stuff. I mean, you talk about the Ravi Zachariah situation and just that whole story in the book and you know, all these examples that the audience knows. I mean, the audience knows who these people are. They were there when it happened. Um mm-hmm. You know, what do you think, like, what's the future hold then? Like, what do we do? You know, I'm sure you're aware of the term deconstruction. A lot of folks are trying to navigate their faith away from evangelical fundamentalism. I would argue both on a theological and on a systemic level, right? I think a lot of us have found that the theology we inherited maybe wasn't the best way of seeing things. And we also, we then saw how it was fleshed out in these you know, evangelical church institutions that defended abusers. What is? What do you think the future looks like? I mean, how do we move forward mm-hmm. from this? What are mm-hmm. some of your thoughts on that?
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, <laughs> many readers of Celebrities for Jesus have noted that I provide a lot of analysis and not a lot of solution, like where do we go from here? Um, in part because I don't think that this issue – is one that can kind of be programmatically addressed, like just plug in these three points and (laughs) you'll, you'll detox from celebrity culture in your church. Right. I do think, and I'm speaking anecdotally here. I mean, I do think people who kind of grew up in a bigger is better. Evangelicalism have been drawn to smaller, more historically rooted expressions of church that are not oriented around uh, a great pastor. Like, I go to a liturgical church currently where our pastor is a fine preacher. He's not great, he's not terrible, he's just fine. But that's okay because he's not the main event. Like yes. we we did not we did not all come there to be wowed by his oratory skills. Like the mm. point is that he is preaching the word and that God will use that faithful preaching however God wants. So I see a lot of my peers at least saying We don't want the flashy thing. We don't want the big and impressive and intense lighting design from the stage. Like we want to be in churches where we can actually know our pastor, where our pastor is like taking the time to actually get to know people in the church where they are accessible, where I can see that they actually want to shepherd, you know, they actually, (laughs) the role of the pastor is about shepherding souls, about providing Soul care, and I see that this person is taking the time to get to know me and other people in the church, and is also knowable. Like, is you know, is acting like a person and not untouchable. You know, they're they're carrying themselves like a person. So, yeah, I think that could be a direction forward. I do think there is work to be done for sure in. Christian book publishing and the conference circuit to come back to like missional values and evaluating, uh, people's ability to speak and preach based on things like quality of writing, spiritual maturity. Um, are, is this person being held accountable in their local context? Are they willing to be held accountable? Are they asking for book deals that would make people in their church like make their jaw drop if they found out how much their pastor was getting paid for their book deal. Right. (laughs) So I think you trying to disconnect like evangelical culture from evangelical commerce and, uh, like breaking down church and business and separating the two, because I I think we all kind of intuit that when these things start to, when these worlds start to combine and get confused and get enmeshed, we feel like church is a place where we're being sold things. I don't think we need another place in our lives where we are being sold things, right? Like,
0: yeah, we
1: have that so many other places. So those are a couple thoughts.
0: Yeah, those are good thoughts. Not a program... God.
1: Not a programmatic solution. Which not like I a follow love. these three steps. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, what you're saying is that you don't have some other uh, Patreon account where people sign up, you'll give them the true answers, right? That's not what you're saying here.
1: Right, like a uh, instantly downloadable detox from celebrity culture starter kit. Right, I am right, not. Right. I am not shilling that on my Patreon <laughs> right. for no. ninety
0: nine ninety five. You know, yeah. Um, two <laughs> things I wanted to point out, and yeah, I, I think we should talk about, about Christian book publishing in the C- Christian conference circuit. I have some, some thoughts, last questions about that. But one thing about about the church you mentioned, I think it's so important. You know, I um one of the wake up calls for me was when i visited my friend's anglican church and they center the whole mass on the eucharist not on uh, a pastor's sermon and it kind of hit me that like evangelical culture the uh, the church event is centered on the sermon that is the star mm-hmm. of the show but mm-hmm. i think like that does whether people realize it or not centers it on a person but the the eucharist communion when that's the central figure of why you're there, then you're really centered on on Christ because you're actually participating in this sacred, you know, tradition. So I mm-hmm. think that is like something that we should be considering, especially in our evangelical spaces. Especially if there are pastors out there listening to this, like, what would it look like to change the focus from the three point, almost borderline self help sermon, right, where you mm-hmm. you pull a few pieces of scripture and say this is how it helps you to maybe that maybe that there is a part of that a short devotional or something, but the main focus is mm-hmm. participating in communion and being united through Christ through, you know, the flesh uh, or the body and the bread.
1: Yeah, I like that a lot. I mean, that is one of the things I love about this church that I'm a part of is that the main event is communion. And right. what you know, regardless of what you think about, like, what happens at communion, it's clear that like the central person is the person of Christ and that we are partaking in the body and blood of Christ. Again, I don't know how you identify or define body and blood, but that's fine. Right. Um, So, yeah, and even if you're not a liturgical church, you don't think of yourselves as a liturgical church, every church has a liturgy. Like, every church has a way of structuring whatever they're doing on Sunday mornings that has certain values, like, implied within it. And so just looking at... How are we spending our time together and are we spending it in a way that centers on the pastor as the purveyor of all the things that we've come to receive or is it centered on the person of Christ and how can we more clearly reflect that in how we structure our time together?
0: I totally agree. I think that's really well said. So the Christian book publishing and Christian conference circuit, that is interesting as a whole because it really is – it seems like to me on the outside. I'm not in the industry. I've been a part of of conferences and stuff. But it's like it's like the perfect combination of spirituality and capitalism, right, where mm-hmm. you can make a lot of money um, you know, selling something that offers people hope. And I'm not – I would go so far as to say that's not even necessarily inherently a, always a bad thing, okay? Let me just be clear to the audience. I'm not saying that if you go to a Christian conference – conference you know you're participating in empire that isn't the point but it does seem like as i follow some of this stuff there's a lot of money to be made and that can cause people who pull those strings to be a little more open to well maybe this leader has no moral character but he mm-hmm. he or she's a great speaker so let's get him on the circuit am i have i'm not asking for details but like what are your thoughts on that kind of idea of like yeah how, how does the, the the circuit and and publishing feed into the celebrity culture
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can't speak for all Christian publishers and conference leaders, but I would say a majority of people who are leaders in those spaces just recognize that celebrity sells and yeah. they are entrepreneurs. They are trying to run a business and they recognize, hey, like we have to not only meet our budget, but ideally create profit. And we know right. that having this particular person with this particular following will get people in the door or will get people on Amazon buying their book. Right. And so questions of you know, depth of content, even like original writing. I mean, there have been issues with plagiarism in yes. Christian book publishing in recent years, like who is actually writing this book? Right. <laughs> um, just... A kind of over time, you see the primacy of celebrity, you see the primacy of platform over other really important considerations. And one of the things I wanted to draw attention to in my book is just to say, I I want Christian conference attendees and book buyers to recognize how the sausage gets made, so to speak, (laughs) like, yeah, just know that when you buy one of these books, when you go to this conference, you are participating in a capitalistic venture, yeah, and that means that to I think it just means to be discerning. Like not everybody who is on stage or who is given a contract has been vetted mm. for theological content or spiritual maturity. yeah, um
0: that's really wise,
1: I, I think a lot of publishers say, yeah, this person may have some, like, moral character issues. I mean, we saw this with Mark Driscoll and the real marriage fiasco. Yeah. they He and his wife were offered a $400,000 contract for a book on marriage after we had all known for years of the problems emerging out of Mars Hill. But some you know, executive at the Christian book publisher he worked with was like, yeah, but we know that this book is create, going to create a splash. We know that people are going to buy this book and talk about it. And, you know, Mark still has this great platform and people want to hear what he has to say. So, like, yeah, there's this other stuff going on, but who cares? Yeah, Essentially. I mean,
0: yeah, I was. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. I've also so interesting thing happened to me. Um. Be- and i'm I'm telling you this story because I've also realized that just because someone's name is on a book doesn't mean that they automatically wrote the book and the example I will use for me is that when I first started new evangelicals a few months in a publisher an agent reached out to me saying hey you know I, I can work with you and I said listen I'm honor that you want me to write a book on deconstruction but having a white dude write a book on deconstruction is just not a good idea for a lot of reasons also i don't really feel qualified and I also i'm not a good writer and they said well we can get you someone to like write the book for you you would just like you would talk and they would dictate i'm like is is that a thing they're like yeah it's you know ghost writing i'm like that's a thing so even like discovering that you know that sometimes people right who might be in, in in influential leadership positions um might not even actually have written the book. It might just be their ideas then kind of mm-hmm. flesh out through a professional writer to produce that book for the publisher to make them a lot of money and make that person a lot of money. So even that side of things is like it's just it just seems to me. You don't really know who the real person is, right? You don't know if if, if those words in that book are really theirs or if it's just right. their name attached to it. You don't know if it's their if it's their personality on the stage. And then I realized that evangelical leaders, some of them, have done a great job of creating like 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 the faux intimacy. You know, like oh, like guys, I'm being super honest with you right now. I'm just giving you a real moment. This happened in my life. You're like, wow, I know this person, but in reality, it's all part of the schtick. Does that make sense?
1: Yes. So. Okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> like I don't a lot you, delay. but
1: yeah, no, no, there was a little bit of a delay there. Going back to ghost writing, oh yeah, I I grant that there are people who actually have a great story or message or, who just can't write. Like writing is a skill. It's a craft. Not everybody has the skill, and that's fine. Sure. I think using you know, paying somebody to take your ideas or your story and put them onto the page is fine under two conditions. One is that they are, are overtly, explicitly credited mm. in the book. Yeah. And two, that they are compensated at a level commensurate with the value that they bring to the project. So That's good. So the problem that I have is when a, a celebrity, pastor, leader, maybe their face is on the cover of the book, gets a book deal based on the idea that they are a celebrity, mm. despite the fact that they cannot... Write. They literally cannot write. There's nothing on the cover that would indicate that they actually had a lot of help in creating this book. Right. That they in fact did not sit down and write this book. That somebody else did it for them in a work for hire agreement. And I just want to say, if that's true for you, just give credit where it's due. Like right, right. There's no harm in just saying this is not my skill set. I'm I'm a speaker. I'm a musician. Like I'm I'm not. In the writing space, I had help.
0: It's like crediting a, needs... a, a producer uh, on an album. Like, hey, the, the producer produced this. You know, yeah, it's my instrument, but it's their work that mixed it and produced the whole thing. It makes complete yeah. sense,
1: right? Just just give credit where credit is due. Yeah. Um, you had said something about a story within a a book that felt like a shtick. No, I was, I, just,
0: it, I, I was just saying that, like that that I've noticed that that some of these celebrity pastors or leaders are really good at creating a sense of the audience knows who I really am. But in mm-hmm. reality, that's just part of like, I'm not, I don't want to sound too negative, but it's just part of, of the image, right? Like you, it's still mm-hmm. not them, but they think you think that, that you know them because of their almost like fake vulnerability. Does that make sense? <laughs>
1: Yes, I, I, I spend time on Instagram, so I'm very familiar with faux vulnerability.
0: <laughs> right, right.
1: Um, Yes, there is, and I don't want to be cynical either because I think, you know, a lot of people with platforms, there are moments in their lives or things that they've experienced, maybe they've experienced suffering and they want to say like, hey, you're not alone. I am totally. not perfect in the way you might think I am. Like, this is the reality. But I do think we should remember with people who have a platform to protect everything that they give to us and that we receive from them is mediated like yes. there's no there's no vision or image or version of them that we on this side of the screen can experience that isn't mediated yes the only way to get an unmediated version of that person is to actually know them over a period of time in like flesh and blood community that's the only way that any of us can actually be known yeah. so not having that access to someone it's just it's just wise to remember they are choosing to tell us what they choose to tell us. <laughs> yes, it's very
0: much curated, right? Which is, yes. is is the nature of social media in general. I totally get mm-hmm. that. But like you said, yeah, I, I'm with you 100. percent And I think that makes a lot of sense. And we should keep that in mind, especially when we are either on this side of the screen, being that 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 person on on one side of the account. Like in our case, you know, it's my face that's on a lot of this stuff. I have to be I have to make sure I'm I'm always as honest and transparent as possible. Letting people know, like, hey, like, I, I, this is me as much as you can see. But yes, obviously, I turn my phone off. You know, you're not getting a twenty four seven live stream of Tim and <laughs> what I do all day. You know, so right. And uh, I, I'm
1: using a ring light right now. Right, you know, right. The, my face does not usually look like this on a Tuesday <laughs> afternoon, sitting in my apartment. I am using a ring light, so uh,
0: good to know. <laughs> well, listen, it was really great having you on the podcast. The book is "Celebrities for Jesus: How Personas, Platforms, and Prophets Are Hurting the Church." Um, your book is available everywhere right it's on Amazon it's everywhere
1: yes Amazon's right. a good place to start also through Baker Bookhouse and you can learn more at Caitlin Awesome.
0: awesome um, anywhere else people can follow you are you on Twitter Instagram TikTok anything like that like all the cool kids <laughs>
1: <laughs> I know I know that you are on TikTok I am too old I think for TikTok I'm intimidated by it um, but I am on Instagram at Caitlin underscore Beatty and I'm also on Twitter at Caitlin Beatty.
0: Awesome. Caitlin, honestly, it was a pleasure getting you on and having the conversation. I'll make sure we put the link to your book in our show notes and I wish you the best and please keep in touch. This is a great conversation that I would like to continue.
1: Thank you so much. It was really fun.
0: Absolutely.